Well, thanks very much, Alex, for a uh, really generous introduction. Uh, can I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting today and uh, pay my respect to elders past and present and, and say how gratified I am to have uh, so many uh, distinguished guests and, uh, and good friends in the audience tonight. Whenever I take one of my sons to an outdoors shop, I like to point out the cliff bars. Do you remember how they got their name? I'll ask them. Wearily, because we've done this routine about a dozen times, they'll roll their eyes. Yes, Dad, they'll reply. Gary Erickson had an idea for a great product and he named it after his dad. That's right, son, I'll say. And don't you think there's a lesson in that for all of us? Like Gary Erickson, Bert Kelly honoured his father in creating today's talk. Truly the act of a modest member. Stan Kelly was a campaigner for free trade in an era where it was deeply unpopular. When Australian industry was setting down, settling down for a long snooze behind high tariff walls, he was arguing for the benefits of trade liberalisation. In 1929, Stan Kelly joined the Tariff Board. The next year, President Hoover signed into law the Smoot-Hawley Act, raising tariffs on over 20,000 goods. It was not a propitious time to be a free trader. And to be a Victorian free trader was tougher still. Uh, at the time of Federation, the colony of New South Wales was the only strong voice for free trade. Premier George Reid famously said that for New South Wales to join the Federation was akin to a reformed alcoholic setting up house with five drunkards, leaving the question of beverages to be decided later by majority vote. <laughs> Yet over the coming decades, Victoria did produce the occasional free trader. Stan Kelly was one, Bert Kelly was another. Now, Bert was a proud Liberal Party representative, and I'm a Labor true believer. I've never shared Bert's electoral politics, but I've always admired his ability to argue for sound economic policy with a well-chosen anecdote and a witty turn of phrase. The book of his modest member columns, Economics Made Easy, sits next to the desk in my Parliament House office, and it's always fun to thumb through. In one 1979 column, Bert Kelly says that almost all economists are unpopular. And if they aren't, that is because they are not good economists or they are deceiving people. <laughs> it's a pretty bracing words for an economist who's hoping to get re-elected next month. It's a true honour to follow in the footsteps of those who've given the lecture before me, including Anne Kruger, Ross Garneau, Leslie Melville, John Stone and Bob Hawke. Uh, my thanks to the remarkably pansophic Alex Milmau and the Economic Society of Victoria for inviting me. So now to the talk. Even prior to COVID, there were signs that globalisation was in trouble. World trade volumes, which had outstripped world output for decades, began to slow. The election of populists in many countries threatened international institutions. Britain withdrew from the European Union and American intransigence damaged the World Trade Organization's ability to resolve trade disputes. The COVID pandemic accentuated that slide, just as the 1918-20 influenza pandemic helped to derail globalisation a century earlier. Pandemics increase our fear of foreigners and lend power 
to the isolationists. COVID empowered those who believe in shutting out the world and made life tougher for those who believe in the benefits of engaged multilateralism and diverse multiculturalism. COVID empowered racists, xenophobes, protectionists, chauvinists and jingoists. But to adapt Monty Python, what has economic openness ever done for us anyway? <laughs> One way to answer that question is to look and see whether there's any relationship between Australian living standards and economic openness. Let me show you what I think is a fresh way of doing that. As a measure of relative living standards, I'm going to create a new metric. The share of the world's population who live in countries with higher average living standards than Australia. I'm going to use population and GDP data from Angus Madison's database, updated since his death. And that is effectively going to be looking at our performance in the Living Standards Olympics, weighting countries by their population size. To be beaten by Luxembourg then matters less than if we're beaten by the United States. Although this method has the disadvantage that it doesn't take into account the distribution of income within countries, it does mean that I can estimate it over nearly two centuries. In what I show you, I'm going to reverse the scale to reflect the fact that better economic performance means being beaten by a smaller share of the world. So in some sense, the best you can do is to be beaten by 0% of the world, which we do on a number of occasions. As a measure of openness, I'm going to use the sum of imports and exports divided by twice the national output. Both incoming and outgoing trade, trade flows matter for openness, but summing them together and dividing by GDP risks producing a figure that goes over 100%. Dividing by twice GDP averts that problem. So, what do we get when we graph those two? Here's figure one, showing those two metrics. So our performance is the blue line, the share of the world population with mean income above Australia. That's off the left scale, which is reversed. And the red line is economic openness. Exports plus imports divided by twice GDP. Red line plotted off the right axis. And you can see that during the 1850s and 1860s, Australian living standards were so high that only 2 to 5% of the world population dwelt in more affluent countries. From 1875 to 1891, with the sole exception of 1882, Australia had the highest per capita incomes in the world. By the early 1900s, Australia's relative standing had begun to fall. In the, in the 1930s, almost 10% of the world's population lived in countries richer than Australia. During the post-war decades, we climbed back up the ranking a bit, with around 7% of the world's population outperforming us. Then, from the early 1990s, we rose further still. Since the late 1990s, Australia has been in the top 5% of living standards globally. And then there's openness. That's the red line plotted on the right scale. During the mid-1800s, our openness share was about one-third though this figure fell to about 15% by the 1880s. Openness fell in the 1930s and during World War II, 
rose immediately after World War uh, World War II ended, and then dropped again in the 1950s and 1960s. It steadily increased during the 1980s and 1990s, and has remained at around 16% during the 2000s. The two series aren't perfectly correlated. For example, when Australia had the highest average living standards in the world, our level of economic openness was declining, albeit off a high base. But the series do move together in the period after the Second World War and during the 1980s and 1990s. And the association is statistically significant. Adrian, you might want to close your ears at this point. Uh, the uh, simple pairwise correlation between the living standards measure and the openness measure is significant at 1%, uh, though, of course, that doesn't take account of serial correlation. So, on its face, that implies that on times when Australia's been more open to the world, we've enjoyed higher living standards. But averages only take us so far. When Elon Musk walks into a bar, the average wealth is over a billion dollars but that doesn't make the average drinker a billionaire. Since at least the formulation of the Stolper-Samuelson theory, economists have recognised that economic openness can benefit some while hurting others. So it's helpful to look at the specific impacts of imports, immigration and foreign investment on Australian living standards and on inequality. Let me start with imports and inequality. A standard result from the distributional analysis of consumption taxes is that they operate in a regressive manner. Because high-income households have a higher saving rate than low-income households, expenditure taxes impose a larger burden on the poor. To take a simple example, suppose an affluent household has a savings rate of 20%, while a disadvantaged household doesn't save at all. That means a broad-based consumption tax of 10% is effectively a 10% tax on the total income of the poor household, but it's only an 8% tax on the total income of the rich household. Because tariffs are consumption taxes and imports, tariffs on most products end up being regressive in the sense that they constitute a higher share of income for low-income households than they do for high-income households. So this is a table which is uh, showing expenditure as a share of gross income across household income quintiles, as estimated from the most recent, recent household expenditure survey. And I focused on a handful of uh, expenditure categories that are subject to tariffs. Food shows an especially steep gradient. The lowest income households spend 26% of their income on food and beverages. The highest income households spend just 9%. For the categories of clothing and footwear and household furnishings and equipment, expenditure takes up twice the, the income share of a poor household as it does for rich household. Even if we look at motor vehicles, the pattern's less pronounced but you still see that gradient. Vehicle purchase is a higher share of income for, lowest, for the lowest income households than it is for the highest income households. You can see there, motor vehicles make up 
2.82% of expenditure of income for the lowest income households, 2.34% uh, for the highest income households. Uh, if we look at books and other printed material, uh, subject to some tariffs, but also affected by parallel import laws, you've now got a gradient that's as steep as it was for food. The budget share on books isn't very big on average, but it's three times bigger for the poorest households than it is for the richest households. Now, it's hard to calculate average tariff levels for those various expenditure categories. Tariffs vary by country, free trade agreements reduce the basic tariff levels. And the product categories in the household expenditure survey don't line up with the product categories for tariffs. Sometimes because products are imported as raw materials and then assembled into finished products. You've also got to make some assumptions about the degree to which retailers mark up tariffs that are applied at the importation stage. So there's a lot of complications there, but none of them are likely to affect the distributional impact of tariffs. For example, a clothing tariff that raised retail prices by 5% would equate to a 0.16% tax on the income of the poorest households, but a 0.08% tax on the income of the richest households. That is, its burden would be twice as big for the poorest households as the richest households. Or if you've got a motor vehicle tariff that raised retail prices by 5%, that'd be a 0.14% tax on the incomes of the poorest households, but a 0.12% tax on the income of the richest households. The basic point's pretty simple. Virtually all tariffs are regressive. And that straightforward result suggests that past reductions in tariffs have had a progressive impact. One study by the Centre for International Economics finds that trade liberalisation between 1986 and 2016 increased real incomes by $8,448 for the typical household. It's a suspiciously precise figure, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take it as read. In proportionate terms, that's likely to have had a greater impact on poor households than in rich households. And appropriately enough, the biggest trade liberalisation that taken place in the 1980s was accompanied by structural adjustment plans for workers in the textile, clothing and footwear sectors. Recognising that while there was an aggregate community benefit of lower prices, there was also uh, a localised employment impact in those industries. And it's worth just stopping for a moment just to reflect on how remarkable the price reductions have been. I went to school in the 1970s and 1980s. And I remember the cost of school shoes being a non-trivial impact for my middle-class parents. And that need not be true today. Uh, when I wrote a book called Choosing Openness a couple of years back, I went back through old newspapers to gauge the, gauge the impact of trade liberalisation on Australian prices. Specifically, I found old Kmart catalogues and matched them up with what you'd find on the Kmart website today. So in 1987, Kmart was selling children's shoes for 10 bucks and men's work boots for $28. Then I went on 30 years later, 
2017. Kmart was then selling children's school shoes for $9 a pair and men's work boots for $34 a pair. So the children's school shoes had gone from $10 to $9. The men's work boots had gone from $28 to $34. Which basically means Kmart could have kept the same shelf stickers for 30 years. From the era of Dirty Dancing to the era of Ed Sheeran. Those tags would have looked pretty yellowed and scuffed, but their prices would have remained accurate to within a few dollars, despite the fact that nominal wages tripled over this period. As economists have pointed out, lower tariffs didn't just mean cheaper products, it meant more choices. As tariffs fell, it became more viable for retailers to import a vast range of products where it just wasn't economic in the high tariff era. Over the past generation, the number of different car models sold in Australia has tripled. Our supermarkets stock more product lines than ever before. If you've got a quirky hobby, you play an unusual sport, you enjoy a rare cuisine, you're likely to have gotten a disproportionate benefit from trade liberalisation. And indeed, one interesting economic study suggests that the consumer benefit of a wide range of goods might be larger than the consumer benefit of cheaper prices. The foundation of trade is comparative advantage. If you pay someone else to cut your hair and fix your car, you already enjoy the benefits of comparative advantage locally. International trade just reflects the same idea on a global scale. My colleague Madeleine King has pointed out that if every nation had to supply its own medical equipment, healthcare costs would soar. Try treating all your ailments only with medicines that were invented and produced in Australia. And you'll quickly see how the global flow of innovation and products has made us healthier. Economist James Ingram pointed out in the 1970s that we can think of trade as akin to a magical machine that turns our exports into imports. We fill ships with iron ore, wheat and gold. They return laden with furniture, trucks and smartphones. That magical trade machine produces those things more cheaply than would be, would be possible if we had to build them domestically. That's comparative advantage in action. Yet over recent years, the number of harmful trade measures has risen sharply. For over a decade, Global Trade Alert, an initiative of the London-based Centre for Economic Policy Research, has tracked the number of harmful trade restrictions. From 2009 to 2021, the figure rose by a quarter. From 2098 to 2684. Over that period, Australia was the victim of 1.1% of harmful trade restrictions and we were the perpetrator of 1.4% of harmful trade restrictions. Global Trade Alert estimates that back in 2009, 28% of Australian exports were at risk from harmful trade measures. By 2021, that figure had risen to 73% of Australian exports at risk from harmful trade measures. 
What holds true for trade in general also holds true for trade with China. As the Australian National University's Shiro Armstrong has noted, free trade that excludes China isn't free trade. Since more supply chains run through China than any other nation. Because of that, China has a huge stake in maintaining a rules-based order. And Australia has a strong interest in encouraging the Chinese leadership to maintain the system that's massively benefited their nation since China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. Rather than lambasting negative globalism, engaged egalitarianism, the title of my talk, demands that Australia play a more active role in campaigning globally for trade liberalisation. Within APEC, we could press for agreements that countries won't impose additional trade restrictions on food and essential medical supplies. In the World Trade Organisation, Australia ought to be encouraging a comprehensive long-term solution to the, to the breakdown of the dispute resolution pro process. I'm particularly disappointed that the Biden administration's approach to the World Trade Organisation does not differ much from the Trump administration's. Regionally, Australia should encourage the conclusion of the 15-member Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which covers the 10 ASEAN states, plus Australia, China, Japan, New Zealand and South Korea. And naturally, trade agreements can boost Australian exports, on which I've said very little. I've done this not because exports don't matter, but because they tend to dominate the thinking of trade policy makers already and because their impact on living standards is, is so clear-cut. Exports expand the pool of consumers to whom businesses can send their, sell their goods and services. That allows business, businesses to expand and create more jobs. Across the Australian economy, 14% of the workforce is employed in export-related activities. If a production technology exhibits increasing returns to scale, then exports can also increase productivity and wages. Empirical evidence suggests that uh, exporters uh, have labour pro productivity growth that's 2% higher and pay wages that are nearly 3% higher. Because the evidence on the positive effects of exporting is so strong, I'm not going to spend more time on it. I'm going to turn now to the more controversial issue of immigration and inequality. When it comes to migrants, it's easy to forget that those who come to Australia bring not just a mouth to feed, but muscles to work and a mind to inspire. Immigrants are overrepresented in startup entrepreneurs and among leading researchers. When I worked at a highly productive research department at the Australian National University, most of my economic colleagues were foreign born. Some were on temporary visas. With a quarter of Australians born overseas, immigration has been a major driver of productivity growth. A third of Australia's Nobel laureates, including Brian Schmidt, J.M. Kurtzer, Patrick White and Bernard Katz, were immigrants. The greatest benefit of beneficiaries of migration are the migrants themselves. Using visa lottery programs as a kind of randomised trial, a study of Indians who migrated to the United States found they increased their earnings sixfold 
from what they were earning in India. Facilitating orderly migration is one of the best ways of reducing global poverty levels, particularly if it's accompanied by measures to reduce the cost of sending remittances back. Globally, remittances exceed the total value of all foreign aid. They account for 41% of Tonga's GDP, 29% of Nepal's, 18% of Samoa's. For those nations, migrants matter. The impact of immigration on the wages of the native-born has been hotly debated by economists. A literature review conducted by the OECD identified 28 studies on migration and wages. Of those, 13 reported no effect, 7 a small positive effect, 8 a small negative effect. And the review identified a, a similarly mixed pattern with respect to the impact of immigration on employment. Most of the research failed to back up the claim that migrants rob jobs. And the leading Australian stu study by Brunig, Deutscher and Toe reached the same conclusion. To the extent that economists have found evidence of local workers being hurt by migration, it seems to occur, according to the OECD, when existing workers have similar skills to the new arrivals and when the influx is very large. To the extent that the migrants affect wages and employment, it's crucial to ask the question, whose wages? For example, a country dominated by low-skill immigration might experience a large influx of gardening hands. If the inflow is large enough, that might decrease wages among native-born gardeners. In principle, this could reduce the welfare of low-wage gardeners and benefit those households who are rich enough to buy the services of gardeners. Anecdotally, it seems much more common for affluent households in San Diego to pay someone to mow their lawn than it does for households in a similar position in the income distribution in Sydney. Conversely, a country that facilitates migration by medical doctors might find that that reduces the rate of wage growth among native-born doctors. That in turn might flow through to the prices and availability of medical services for those who use them most. In Australia's case, 56% of GPs and 47% of specialists are overseas born. Since low-income households make more GP visits and are more likely to suffer from chronic illnesses, the beneficiaries of those immigration settings are disproportionately those in lower income households. So what do we know about the earnings of Australian migrants? In this figure I've used uh, data from the 2016 census, uh, which is the most recent census from which data is currently available, to calculate the personal income distribution of skilled permanent immigrants. And then I compare that with the distribution of personal income among the Australian-born population. And what this chart shows is that skilled permanent migrants, they're the red bars you see there, are overrepresented among those with zero or negative incomes. So it does suggest that some of the skilled permanent visa holders may struggle to find work. But conditional on being in the labour force, skilled permanent migrants 
tend to earn more than the Australian population, the Australian-born population. That's the blue bars there. Skilled permanent migrants are less likely to earn annual incomes between a dollar and $42,000, but more likely to earn incomes above $42,000. And that gap grows in the higher categories. Skilled migrants are much more likely to earn between $104,000 and $155,999, and they're substantially more likely to earn $156,000 or more. In fact, skilled permanent migrants are almost twice as likely to be in that top income band. Now, there's certainly scope to refine the operation of Australia's migration program, and recommend anyone who's interested in that to have a look at a couple of recent Grattan Institute reports uh, on the topic. But that result suggests that the permanent skilled migration program is unlikely to be increasing income inequality. To the extent that immigrants through this program have an impact on the wages of Australian-born workers, and we know from the literature that such effects are likely to be pretty small, that's likely to be having an equalising effect on the Australian income distribution. Now, that result might differ across migration categories. A similar analysis of the income distribution of temporary visa holders or permanent visa holders who've come through the family or humanitarian intake would likely show an income distribution closer to the Australian-born population or perhaps even lower. But we need to remember that those programs are not mainly focused on economic outcomes. In the case of programs aimed to unite families or provide safety to asylum seekers, it's not reasonable to expect migrants' incomes to exceed those in the general population. As a share of our population, few countries have successfully welcomed as many migrants as Australia. And that makes us ideally suited to lead a global conversation on managing migrant inflows. As Columbia's Jeff Sachs has pointed out, there's no international regime that establishes standards and principles for national migration policies, other than in the case of refugees. That should be a priority for engaged egalitarians. Finally, let me say a few words about investment and inequality. Over recent years, $1 in nine of domestic investment in Australia has come from overseas. Australia's reliance on overseas capital dates to the earliest days of European settlement. Investment from Britain, the United States, Japan and China has helped to fuel economic growth. Foreign investors don't just bring cash, they can also bring know-how. British pharmaceutical firm AstraZeneca has been operating in Australia since 1957, carrying out research and development with local medical researchers and currently employing nearly 1,000 people. In 2017, they upgraded their Northride manufacturing plant with a $100 million investment in smart manufacturing. Every year, they carry out half a dozen clinical trials in Australia. And foreign investment can also provide competitive pressure. For example, Aldi's entry into the supermarket industry caused Coles and Woolworths to lower their prices. We also need to remember 
that often the choice isn't foreign or local, it's foreign or nothing. When Japanese company Toyota and American firm General Motors stopped building cars in Australia in 2017, no local investors stepped in. The factories shuttered, thousands of workers lost their jobs. When the owners of Cubby Station went into voluntary administration in 2009, no local buyers volunteered to buy the 93,000 hectare cotton property. If investors from Japan and China hadn't bought the property in 2013, it might not have remained a viable operation. As late New South Wales Premier Neville Rand once quipped about foreign investment in agricultural land, well, they can't take it with them. Investing in Australia provides a welcome source of diversification for overseas pension funds. To mitigate risk for their members, Canadian retirement funds, such as Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, have invested in Australian piggeries, dairy farms and feedlots. At the same time, Australian superannuation funds are increasingly investing overseas, helping ensure that retirees don't have all their eggs in, the, in a single basket. The idea here is akin to the reason why workers haven't, shouldn't have all of their retirement savings in the company they work for. If the firm goes bust, you lose your job and your investments. But if you have investments in other firms, you diversify your risk. Likewise, investing a portion of your superannuation overseas helps buffer the risk of a significant slump in the Australian economy. Foreign investment can also reduce trade conflict by giving foreigners a stake in the success of the Australian economy. Adam Triggs points to the example of Indonesia, which for years restricted beef exports from Australia. Then, as Indonesian firms invested in the Australian cattle industry, Indonesia's incentive to curtail our beef exports has been substantially reduced. A common myth is that Australia makes it especially easy for foreign investors. In fact, Australia's foreign investment screening is already more stringent than most advanced nations. The OECD's Foreign Direct Investment Regulatory Restrictiveness Index measures openness on a scale from zero, completely open, to one, completely closed. In the latest uh, analysis, which is based on 2020 data for 30 OECD member nations, Australia was ranked as the fifth most restrictive nation, with a score of 0.15, uh, making us significantly more restrictive than the OECD average of 0.07. The many OECD nations that are more welcoming to foreign investment than Australia include Britain, Japan, Germany and the United States. Looking in the opposite direction, one of the few that has tougher foreign investment screening rules than Australia is New Zealand. According to a recent Productivity Commission study, if Australia tightened our foreign investment rules to match those across the Tasman, net investment would fall 1.3%, gross domestic product would fall 0.26%, and gross national income would fall 0.17%. In recent decades, capital deepening has, become a, has been a major source of productivity gains. Simply put, investing in better industrial machines, 
newer computers and more efficient offices increases the amount that workers can produce every hour. So in the, in the long run, as we know, productivity gains are the main source of wage gains. That means that if we want fatter pay packets, foreign investment can help. Scarce factors earn higher returns, so banning foreign investment would raise the rate of return for existing capital owners. Since capital is highly concentrated, that would deliver windfall gains to the most affluent. Specifically, the Productivity Commission's analysis estimates that tightening Australian foreign investment rules to match New Zealand's would lead to a 0.25% increase in the rate of return on capital, but a 0.24% fall in wages. For a worker on median earnings of $1,200 a week, that would amount to $150 annual loss. Part of that wage loss is driven by job loss, with sectors likely to shed jobs if foreign capital dries up. Although foreign investment tends to be concentrated in sectors with above average earnings, mining, manufacturing, financial services, the combination of a wage reduction and an increase in the return to domestic capital would probably increase overall income inequality. At the very least, we know from the GNI and the GDP results that it would reduce aggregate economic well-being. Engaged egalitarianism recognises that foreign investment can boost equality. One way to think about foreign investment is that it raises the ratio of capital to labour in an economy. If labour markets work as they should, then more capital per worker ought to lead to higher wages. Just as workers earn less in capital-scarce Uganda than in capital-rich Switzerland, so too Australian workers should benefit from an increase in the national capital stock. That's true whether the investor lives in Townsville, Toronto or Tokyo. Over the past two centuries, Australia's economic performance on the global stage has been strongest when our nation is most engaged with the world. In the 1880s, when Australia's income per person placed us number one in the world, the trade share was high. And that was also a period in which foreign investment funded almost half of all domestic investment. And it was a period when many Australians were new immigrants. Indeed, of all of the migrants who left Europe from 1851 to 1915, 7% went to Australia. We were the third most popular destination. Amazing statistic, given that we were relatively small and very distant. And the earnings gap in that era was vast. A 19th century labourer in Sydney was earning twice as much as their counterparts in San Francisco and Chicago. By contrast, Australia's retreat into isolationism behind the walls of white Australia and tariffs saw the country slip backwards in relative terms from other countries' living standards and productivity. When the economy re-globalised in the 1980s and 1990s, we began climbing the ladder 
closing the gap in living standards between us and more internationally engaged nations. But Australia still has a productivity problem and our lack of global engagement is part of the challenge. Stephen Kirshner reports that Australia's trade share is substantially lower than the typical high income country. On the COF Globalisation Index, we rank 28th, nestled between Croatia and Malaysia. Australia could also benefit from increasing the diversity of our economy. In the Harvard Atlas of Economic Complexity, Australia ranks 86th, putting us between Oman and Uzbekistan. We're not just too disengaged with the world. We have too many economic eggs in too few baskets. Autarky isn't just bad for productivity, it can also worsen inequality. Tariffs on imports tend to be regressive, so increasing trade restrictions imposes a proportionately larger burden on poorer households. Skilled permanent migration to Australia has seen an influx of high wage earners. So even if migration decreases wages, for which the evidence is pretty patchy, the impact of skilled migration may be to reduce earnings inequality. Modelling of foreign investment suggests that a more restrictive approach would reduce wages. The same is doubtless true for a reduction in exports, which would effectively shrink the market size for Australian firms. In the spirit of Stan and Bert Kelly, I've outlined a few ideas about how Australia could step up our global approach, guided by the philosophy of engaged egalitarianism. On the trade front, we should work to reduce harmful trade measures and improve the World Trade Organization's dispute resolution process. On immigration, we should work with other nations to develop a more unified approach to people flows. On foreign investment, we should avoid tightening screening. There's other opportunities for global leadership too, including in the OECD, the G20, and even the G7, which could provide a chance for Australia to pursue an engaged egalitarian agenda. For Australia is to build back better after COVID, it's vital we remember the many ways that globalisation has shaped our nation for the better. With just 0.3% of the world's population, Australia stands to benefit from being connected to the world through trade, migration and investment. If our nation rejects the benefits of openness, either through xenophobia or a broader failure to step up to regional leadership, we might end up poorer and more unequal. Conversely, an engaged egalitarian approach reflects Australia's values and our history and offers a bright future for the nation and the globe. Thanks very much. Look forward to your questions.